Well, this morning we open up God's Word again this morning to the book of Zechariah. And so I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Zechariah chapter 13. It's on the screen, but there are Bibles available for you on the back table. This is a book that we have been in for many weeks. And so I don't feel the need to rehash all that we've gone through. But you remember that this prophet Zechariah speaking for Yahweh in the 6th century B.C., so the 500s B.C., spoke first through these vivid visions that he had been given to give to God's people. And now he speaks to the nation of Israel through prophetic oracles. And the purpose of these visions and these oracles is that Yahweh has sought to encourage and exhort his people in a variety of ways. And one of the things that we found over and over again is that much of this encouragement comes in the form of distant hope. Certain hope, absolutely, for sure. But it's things that these people who, who have first heard these words, that they, they will not lay their eyes on personally. It's a view that was hazy at best in how exactly Yahweh was going to accomplish these things in their lives. And it just reminds us of the privileged position then that we have here in the New Covenant to see more clearly what they didn't see back in the 6th century. And so last week, as we continue to make our way almost to the end of this prophecy, last week we ended with the image of a fountain. Chapter 13, verse 1. The Jews would have been familiar with this imagery, right? A fountain for the Jews equals cleansing. The ritual cleansing that was commanded, for example, in the book of Leviticus. But a fountain also is a basic necessity of life. It gives to us a basic necessity of life, right? Psalm 36, verse 9. For with you is the fountain of life. And so last week we were reminded that as we look to the pierced one, on that day, a fountain is opened. A fountain to cleanse us. And a fountain to give us life. Well, since chapters 12 and 13 are so closely linked, there really is a continuation this morning of what we talked about last week in chapter 12. A continuation of the Lord's work by His Spirit. A work that began in chapter 12 and verse 10 by this production as the Holy Spirit produced mourning in the lives of God's people. To now, in chapter 13, as we're about to see, the Lord's work to bring about change. Here we are reminded, simply put, as the hymn writer put it, we're reminded not only that the Gospel, God's work, removes the guilt of sin, but also the power of sin. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week with one verse overlap. Chapter 13, verse 1. If you're able, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Zechariah chapter 13, verses 1 through 9, the entirety of the chapter. Listen as I read. On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. 
And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, you shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision. When he prophesies, he will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet. I am a worker of the soil. For a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go to be seated. I want to begin this morning with one word, and it's the word jealousy. What kind of things, what kind of memories, what kind of emotions, what kind of struggles come to your mind when you hear the word jealousy? Maybe you think of your upbringing and relationship to your siblings, maybe your current relationship with your siblings. Maybe there's something else that you think of in regards to work or promotions at work or whatever the case may be. As I thought about the word jealousy, I thought of my fifth grade year and a profound crush I had on Julie. Julie was delightful, but she would not give me the time of day. My classmate Ian, however, seemed to grab her attention, and I couldn't understand it. What did Ian have that I didn't have? He wasn't smarter, he wasn't cooler, he wasn't more athletic, but he did have dimples. Those cute, darn dimples. I was so jealous. I was jealous to the point of trying to figure out how I could get dimples how I could create dimples in my cheeks in order to attract Julie's attention. Of course, assuming that was what attracted her attention. You see, for the most part, when we think of jealousy, what do we think of? We think of envy, right? We think of resentment. Envy exposes discontentment and ingratitude, and of course, those things are all sin. But those things don't apply to the Lord. They don't apply to the God that we've gathered to worship this morning, and yet you may have noticed that the sermon title that I gave to this morning's message is Our Jealous God. And I recognize that the word isn't mentioned explicitly in this passage, but we do find this idea of jealousy throughout the Scripture in relationship to God, notably in the very beginning 
of Yahweh calling a people unto Himself. Exodus 34, verse 14, He says to His people, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, for Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. You see, jealousy is in some way central to understanding who God is. And this leads us back to human jealousy. For we would say that although much of our jealousy is sinful, that there is a positive human jealousy, right? I mean, when one fiercely is protective of one's rights or vigilantly guarding and maintaining something. For instance, in the marriage relationship, we need jealousy. And it's that picture that moves us, I think, closer to understanding God's jealousy. Let me read a definition I came across from one theologian this week about the jealousy of God. He says this, The jealousy of God is His holy commitment to His honor, glory, and love that manifests itself in the salvation of His people and the just condemnation of those who stand in opposition to Him. His holy commitment to His honor, glory, and love. Now if we think about honor and glory, there is no envy in that for Yahweh because there are no real rivals, right? There are no real rivals to Yahweh. He is a a one-of-a-kind. There is no one like Him. He is in a class by Himself, infinitely worthy of worship and glory and honor. And then, jealousy expresses His commitment to love. Back to the marriage analogy. Love protects and preserves what is good and right no matter what the cost. The Lord is committed, Yahweh is committed to loving you. So as I said, though the word isn't explicitly here, this is a passage, I think, about the Lord's jealousy. And so I want to frame our thinking this morning for the next few moments around that idea. Two truths for us to consider. And the first is this. The Lord is jealous for His people's worship. It's the first thing we see here in this passage. The Lord is jealous for His people's worship. Two problems present themselves here in this passage. The problem of idolatry and the problem of prophets. Now, idolatry had been a long-standing problem for ancient Israel, especially in their world, which was so rife with local deities and those who followed them. And so God made explicit instructions not to worship the gods of the lands, but to keep their focus on Him. Right out of the gate, Yahweh warns them to be wary, to be on guard against the things that would lure them away from Him. And yet the human heart, being what it is, still struggled. Right? We've seen it already in this book. Chapter 10, verse 2. They look to them, that is those diviners, those idols, they look to them for what? For empty consolation. The prophet Jeremiah dealt with this as well. Jeremiah 2 verse 13, 
He says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. And so in response to this continued struggle with idolatry, Yahweh declares that on that day, remember that phrase we talked about last week, on that day, the one spoken of here, I will deal with idols and they will be remembered no more. It's clearly an external act in some way that has also an internal reality, an inward reality in His people, right? They will be so consumed with Him that the memory of the idols even will be gone. The Lord is jealous for His people's worship. And then closely related to that is Yahweh's condemnation in this passage of prophets. His promise to deal with the prophets. And of course, these words are being spoken by a prophet. So there's consensus here that what Zechariah is talking about is false prophets in the midst of God's people. And if you think about it, false prophecy, false teachers, and idolatry, they go hand in hand. Idolatry breeds false prophecy, and then the more untethered from the truth that we become, the more we struggle with idols. Post-exilic false prophecy was a problem. Remember way back when we studied the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 6, Tobiah and Sanballat used the prophetess Noadiah to seek to discourage and to scare God's people in their rebuilding of the walls. We could go to other passages in Scripture where false prophecy showed itself in the life of God's people. We see here in this chapter the seriousness with which Yahweh views this issue. False prophets who led the people of God astray always had serious consequences coming to them. In Deuteronomy 13, Moses speaks of stoning false prophets. Here, following that passage on the pierced one, the prophet Zechariah speaks of piercing those who speak falsely in the name of Yahweh. In other words, there is to be no toleration of false teaching. God's people must be protected Because the Lord is jealous for His people's worship. This will create an environment, the prophet says in verses 4-6, through where the false prophets will seek to hide their identities at all costs. A couple of interesting things are mentioned here in our passage. First, the hairy cloak. No more hairy cloaks. This could be a picture, an allusion to Jacob and to the cloak that he put on to do what? To deceive his father into thinking he was Esau in order that he might steal his blessing, Genesis 25. And these wounds that are spoken of here in verses 4 through 6, 
Those wounds were ritual scars that false prophets would have received as they participated in pagan practices. And now people in obedience to Yahweh are done with false prophecy and they're saying, where do you get those scars? You must be a false prophet. And they're trying to hide them and make other excuses about where they're coming from. So the question is, if Yahweh is jealous for his people's worship, and there's a problem of idolatry and false prophecy, when will this all happen? We've talked about this before. Pockets of purification of the land and of his people will take place throughout Israel's history. But the designation on that day, as we spoke about last week, the designation on that day was really inaugurated at Jesus' first coming. And it will be consummated as Jesus comes again. You see, it's begun. It's happening now by the power of the gospel and through the power of God's Spirit. Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your heart of flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. You see, brothers and sisters, we have been forgiven. We have experienced this fountain of cleansing through the gospel, and we are now called to a new obedience because Yahweh is jealous for His people's worship. And those struggles of ancient Israel, the struggle of idolatry and false prophecy, they're still very much alive today. Idolatry is still an issue It will always be an issue in our hearts. False prophecy, false teachers, still an issue. And so it's worth just taking a moment to consider how does this come into our lives here today in 2023 in Edmonds, Washington. Well, let's think about idolatry for a moment. We've talked about idolatry before. Idolatry, uh, as defined by some, is simply turning good things into ultimate things. Right? Placing our love, our trust, our obedience in them rather than in God. We have all kinds of idols. We have theological idols. We have ideological idols. We have political idols. We have relational idols. We make idols out of sex and romance. We make idols out of amassing wealth. And being comfortable, we make idols out of gaining power and increased control. We make idols out of building a reputation and leaving a legacy. Essentially what we're doing is we're looking to these, as the people of old did, we're looking to these things, though it may not be a carved image on our mantle, we're looking to these things as our saviors. And we're looking to them to give us something that they can't give. At the end of the day, as the prophet has already said, they will only give empty consolation. 
Well, those are big categories. So how does the rubber meet the road, right, in our lives, in our hearts, in your life, in your heart? In other words, how can you identify, how can you discern your idols? What are the broken cisterns that you are looking to in your life to hold water? Well, that's a process, I think. It's a process of self-examination. It's a process of praying that prayer that I hope you pray at times, that prayer that David taught us to pray. Where he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Some of the teachers in our tradition have been helpful in terms of writing about this, thinking about this. David Paulison, no longer here on earth, but a great counselor, writer, author. He says this in one of his writings. Has something besides Jesus taken title to your hearts? Your functional trust, your preoccupation, your loyalty, your service, your fear, and your delight. What do you really want out of life? What would really make you happy? That might be an idol. Tim Keller, of course, PCA pastor has written a book on this called Counterfeit Gods. I recommend it to you if you haven't read it. But he encourages to ask these questions. What does your daydreaming consist of? Where does your heart go in absolute solitude? How do you spend your money? Those things quite possibly could be idols. Brothers and sisters, this is a lifelong project fueled by daily repentance and a daily setting of our hearts on Christ. Right? We fight idolatry best by filling ourselves with Jesus. Colossians 3, 1 through 5, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, set your mind on things that are above, not on the things of the earth, for you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Well, then there's this issue of false prophets. Men and women who in the name of the Lord speak and teach at best misleading words and at worst downright lies. False teachers were an issue in Israel. They were, they continued to be an issue in the New Testament church. Remember the Lord's words to the church at Thyatira in Revelation 2. We studied that a few years back. He says this, you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants. Well, this is just another warning for us this morning out of Zechariah 12. Because here in the information age where everyone has a platform giving them a voice and perceived authority, this is not over. We have pastors, leaders, twisting the Word of God. We have whole movements within the church advocating for things outside of Scripture. 
And it's a reminder that we must learn discernment, that we must not make light of it, but rather we must call it out for not being in accordance with his word. And let me say this, I think I've said this to you before, you don't need to know every false teaching that's out there to be able to discern the truth. It's impossible to know all the craziness that exists in our world. But it begins by knowing the truth. Psalm 119.66 Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Philippians 1.9 And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. Discerning truth from error, while it begins with knowing the truth of God's Word, it does continue with thoughtful engagement of opposing views. Guided by His Spirit, through knowledge and engagement of the Word, we must discern. You see, we do these things because we recognize that God is jealous for the worship of His people. It was a jealousy that was proved at the cross of Christ. And that's actually where Zechariah leads us next. Second truth I want us to think about this morning very briefly as we close is the Lord's jealousy will preserve a people. The Lord's jealousy will preserve a people. As he has done over and over and over again in this book, the Lord through the prophet Zechariah gives us a glimpse of who is at the heart of his plan for his people. We've seen it throughout this oracle. We can't keep our promises. So he reminds us that he is the promise keeper and he will send the promise. We're reminded that shepherds, our earthly shepherds, are failing. And so what does he say? He sends the good shepherd who will do what the earthly shepherds can't do. We're reminded that we can't save ourselves, and so he reminds us that he will send the pierced one. See, the true shepherd reappears here, but to our surprise, it's God himself that raises a sword against him. Do you see that? Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me. Of course, this is the way it had to be. It's the only way that it could be. Isaiah 53. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Peter proclaimed in Acts 2, Jesus delivered up to the according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, In Christ, God was reconciling Himself to the world. You see, it is this striking of the shepherd that Zechariah prophesies here that proves his jealousy, that proves his commitment to his people, that fuels our pursuit of laying down our idols and clinging to His truth. And it's this striking of the shepherd that will produce, according to our text, a scattering. 
What's the scattering? Matthew 26, 31, Jesus applies the words of this prophecy to himself and he tells his disciples, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And the scattering happened in history as the disciples fanned out from Jerusalem but also as the Jews were destroyed. We've talked about it before. In A.D. 70, when Jerusalem was destroyed, the city of David captured and decimated by the Romans, fulfilling the consequences of covenant disobedience that were outlined way back in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And Zechariah says a scattering of God's people is coming, but even in that... Even in that lopping off of this two-thirds of his people, what, what will happen? His jealousy will preserve a people. We don't have time to dive into this, but I think this promise that we see here in these verses in this short little poem that ends our passage this morning, this is a promise that is still to come. I think this is a promise of of general repentance of ethnic Jews who come to Christ. Paul seems to hint at such a design. Read Romans 11, specifically verses 26 through 29, and he talks about it. So the Lord hasn't given up on his people, even ethnic Jews. He wants to come to Him through the Messiah. But this also applies to us, right? Sons of Abraham, spiritual seed of Abraham. To you and me, He is committed to His church. He's committed to preserving her. He is committed to making her holy. This is why He called us. Ephesians 1.4, to be holy and blameless in His presence. Ephesians 5.27, to present her to Himself as a glorious church without stain or wrinkle or any such blemish, but holy and blameless. Brothers and sisters, this is our future because of Jesus. The power of God unto salvation, first for the Jew, also to the Gentile, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, working through us to change us, to conform us through struggle at times, through suffering at times, but all the while making us like Jesus. He's jealous for you. He's jealous for your worship. His jealousy was proven in Jesus. And His jealousy will preserve a people in the end. Thank God for His jealousy, for the Gospel, and for its effects on our lives. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this prophecy of Your servant, confusing words, many of them, And yet the message is clear. The message of your heart for your people. Of your jealousy for us to look to you alone. For us to persevere to the end. Oh God, we thank you 
that you are the initiator, that you are the sustainer, that you are the one who will carry us to the end. And so, Father, give us grace by your Holy Spirit, through the teaching of your word, to put away our idols, to be discerning, and to be those who are enraptured and controlled by the love of God for us, shown in Christ Jesus our Lord. This we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.